This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, listeners! Welcome to the second Mad Scientist Roundtable. I am Chris Cogswell, and I am joined here by Marie Mayhew. Da 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 da! <laughs> With a better microphone. <laughs> Hooray! Yes. All right. So yeah, this week we're going to be talking about all kinds of cool stuff. Um, we still haven't really figured out what we're going to do for an intro. No, we need we need a better intro. We need a we better intro. Need, yeah, I guess the song need- is fine, but we need a better intro. Well, I was, you know, off the top of my head under pressure, but I do have a better microphone. And as I was telling Chris, it actually, it looks like I should be, um, I should be gearing up in my, in my, uh, uh, gearing up to hunt kaiju. It's true. It's true. I'm getting, I'm going to get into gypsy danger. I'm going to go out into the ocean and, and start hunting class five kaiju. That's right. I do. I do want to make it clear for the listeners that, Already, we've been on the we've been on this call now like what like twenty minutes setting up. I've seen Marie drink about three cups full of coffee, so this will be good. I'm trying to maintain a very high <laughs> level of of scientific acumen. Nice. All right. Instead of instead of drinking, um, and this is actually we can do it as a you know a blind study test. I'm last time I was drinking wine. This time I'm drinking coffee. Let's see what happens. We can see. We can Let's see, see where the logic goes. What kind of humor? What kind of humor we get from the difference in in liquid we're imbuing here? Nice. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Roundtable. Yeah. All right. So last time we were kind of like all over the place, which was fun. I thought um, it's good, but we've had some questions and stuff from listeners. And we've also had some ideas for cool stuff that we'd like to talk about. So um, Marie, do you want to start? <laughs> so um, I think one of the things that we were puzzling over coming up um, is Neurocore and yeah. what is Neurocore and why is Neurocore all of a sudden being discussed in the news and everywhere else because of uh, a certain uh, cabinet pick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who has a, a, a big fear of grizzly bears? Very big fear and, of grizzly bears. Whether or not education. that's warranted, whether or not that's warranted, I do not know. But I, I do not know. But it's quite interesting. It, it could right. be. So give us the rundown here. So Neurocore. So like Neurocore. Yeah. Neurocore is basically it is um, being sold as a treatment in certain locations. Sounds like in Michigan um, as a treatment for ADHD and for autism and for other learning disabilities in kids 
and in adults. And the premise behind it is you sign up, you go into sort of a strip mall, uh, strip mall location and or wherever it is, and you sit down with a specialist and you kind of go through what's what's ailing you and what what the problems are. And and they set you up on a biofeedback program to help mm. solve to help solve your ailment of, of uh, again, of ADHD or just other sundry learning disabilities. And you may get to be, so you're going to be doing some biofeedbacks and some, some sort of mental, what they call brain performance. They're brain performance centers. So you put on this brain performance regimen of vitamins and eating right and biofeedback. Hmm. And, um, so there's that, uh, <laughs> so there's that, so there's that. So, I mean, that could be inherently, and we can discuss why that is inherently problematic because there is a lot to that, but probably the big thing is, is that Betsy De- DeVoe holds a stake of about like anywhere between five to $25 million in this, in this pyramid scheme of, uh, right. <laughs> Of, you know, which is which you should be familiar with as being one of the Amway heirs, but um, that that's she still hasn't divested as of mm. as of when she was confirmed. She still hadn't divested in that, and it also probably is a pretty good indication of how she views learning and how she views the brain and how she views science and how she views what's possible and what's not. And they're also very very anti medicine, anti medication. Right. So. You can go in and you can have um, a severe ailment and they would recommend moving away from, or hypothetically, they would recommend moving away from medication. So this says, so if, if you go on their website, right, what I find kind of interesting is mm-hmm. when you click on learn more, it mm-hmm. always goes to the schedule assessment page. So it's like, oh, you're interested in learning more? Well, why don't we get you on the phone so we can hard sell you, right? Um, so this says brain, okay, so it says brain performance training. At a Neurocore Brain Performance Center, our 45-minute neurofeedback and biofeedback sessions take advantage of your brain's ability to change. It's neuroplasticity. With neurofeedback, I like that they put neuro in front of everything. Well, you got this. (laughs) Right? It's It's about about the brain. It makes it sound like super legit, right? So, okay, so with neurofeedback, you watch a movie that plays when your brain speed is within the therapeutic range. When it goes out of range, the movie pauses. Which tells you that something is out of balance. So, what is for, so? Do I, oh, I, yeah. coffee. Yeah, my brain. My so, brain speed. So, my brain speed is now. You need neurocore. It's just during the brain speed. I mean, what the, like? Yeah, during the thirty-session program, your brain learns how to stop spiking out of range, and brain function improves. What range? With biofeedback, you learn to breathe deeper and slower to maximize your heart function, allowing proper blood flow and oxygen flow. Okay, so it's like it's like literally those silly things where they make you, you know, they claim like, oh, you know, um, the yogis that do this on the mountains of Nepal can slow down their heart rate magically, right? And like that it's stuff, what? that stuff's what? legit. Sometimes that stuff's legit. Yeah. Well, there is, there has been. I was going to say that. Th- so biofeedback to me, this first of all, this whole thing sort of smacks of Scientology in yeah. some ways too, right? Like you're going to be holding on to these rods, and they're testing your your um, whatever this weird, un, you know, it's again, it's all like this faux science stuff, and there's 
brain waves and biofeedback and how do you best train it and how you know how what's the good and what's the bad between it but i did check it out and there actually was a harvard study done in 1981 Mm -hmm. with the tibetan monks being able to use self-regulation to raise their body temperature. Mm. However, let's just qualify that by saying, you know, I think that there's a huge difference between uh, an eight-year-old kid with autism and or a learning disability and a Tibetan monk. Yeah, someone who's like spent their entire life training to be controlled and yeah, you know what I mean? Like mystical in some way. Measure. Yeah. And measured and like if yeah. you're doing I think to retrain your brain to to be able to do these things, you probably have to have a fairly strong regiment starting from when you were a child all the way of meditation all the way until an an adult and that's what your that's what your focus is to do. Like I don't think you can go in, watch a movie, be like, Oh my god, my brain is spiking and then self regulate. Right. So the so the it's interesting, right? The the all everything that I can find on it basically makes it sound like it's like uh, mindfulness, right? Which is this, um, it's this new, not really new, but it's sort of this like very popular form of therapy for um, people that have like, you know, like um, like like ADHD things like that, right? Where, um, or you know, uh, Tourette's is sometimes treated with this. So is like things like OCD or um, bipolar or whatever. And so the basic idea is that like you, um. The basic idea is you focus on you you note that your bodily functions seem to be going faster than they normally would, right? So I'm nervous. I don't know why I'm nervous, but I seem to be nervous. And then focusing on those feelings and kind of working your way down to a point where, okay, I note that it's going on, but I'm safe, nothing's happening. And then eventually you kind of it kind of disperses, right? Um I'm I'm sure I'm doing a terrible job of explaining it. But again, there's something significantly different between if you're, you know, ADHD is a serious thing, right? If if your mm-hmm. child is ADHD, then there's going to be all kinds of different like therapies and things that can help them. Medications maybe whatever. Um but yeah, this brain training thing seems so strange. Well, what's crazy about it too is it's like again, you have to have a certain amount of awareness that that's happening to you to regulate. And it's like right. I think there's also with ADHD, you may not have that type of awareness. You may not be able to be like, you know, something's wrong, but you may not know what it is or it, what, even how to slow something like that down, even if you can slow something like that down. Because if you have that type of awareness, you know something's wrong, ergo, you should be able to stop it, I think is one of the huge fallacies about about these types of these types of diseases like oh well you are aware of it you're aware that there's something that's afflicting you you should be able to take a vitamin and it's going to be better and it's like no you wouldn't do that with you know glaucoma you wouldn't do that with yeah. you know a heart defect if you had a defective valve you wouldn't do that with any other things that are actually physical ailments why was why was just a simple awareness of it going to be able to to make a difference or why is that even a valid sorry now i'm all like flipping over the table and yelling let's no, put the coffee down but but you get what i'm saying and i think what is so like you're saying what is so crazy about that is like how is this science like how can you even put like how how dare you put a neuro in front of this ma'am right yeah. you know like what is that where does that come from? But the guy who's the scientist who's, if you're on the site, you can take a look. Uh, the scientist who's behind it, who's behind sort of all this, uh, 
all of this uh, tomfoolery, this uh, jargon, this um, whatever I'm trying to is, say. His name is not, it's not Dr. Tomfoolery. Tom, it might as well be. Um, <laughs> is like a pretty accredited cat. Like he's got some serious credentials. He did studies in Alzheimer's and how to try and improve memory in uh, dementia and Alzheimer's in people of advanced age. Right. Which again, I think is a little, could be inherently different than someone with uh, autism or, or, or ADHD. Which are the two big ones that they cite on their on their site? Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. He's got a lot of like publications and things, so it makes me wonder how legit or how un you know how serious this stuff is, right? Um, some of this stuff is like in pretty good journals too, like Neurology or um, I saw one in here that was in a pretty. They have Nature, neuro in Nature front of reviews. them, so I trust it. Yeah, well, Nature reviews Neurology, right? Is an is an okay journal, whatever. He's been in some case reports. He's had some other things going on. Like it definitely seems like a real, a real guy, right? A real researcher and things. Um, the question I think always is, um, the question I guess is as always with these sort of things, maybe there's something to it, right? Maybe there is something mm -hmm. useful, but the fact, so there's such a long history of, um, there's always Quackery. like like you, like you yeah well like you said there's this background to it of like anti medicine anti science right where um you think well you know no one when I was a kid had like that's that's one thing I think is is really interesting um you see all these stories where people are like well what's with the millennials that now they're all depressed and anxious and stuff or like what's going on mm -hmm. um and actually I think you asked me that question when we first met. Right. Mm -hmm. When we first went out to the bar that time, you were like, what is it with you asked it, what my take was on this idea that millennials are all anxious and depressed and things. Right. I, I, I feel like I remember that. I, Maybe. I probably I probably did. <laughs> we were drinking beer, but but <laughs> I was I was just just so our viewers have some context. I was probably drunk. <laughs> The inter well, the interesting thing I think about that. <gasps> what is it with you millennials and your depression? <laughs> Why are you all so sad? We would just suck it up. We would just suck it up in my day. <laughs> the thing. Well, that, okay, but seriously though, that is a totally like, that's a thing people think, right? They think like, well, why? You know, everyone's taking medicine today. Everyone's on high blood pressure medicine. Everyone's on depression medicine. Whatever. And so the question always comes up: like, is that because more cases of that are starting, or is it because we're getting better at diagnosing it? Right. I'd understand. So it. one yep. really interesting case of that is actually with autism. Um, people seem to think that autism cases are on the rise, but they've actually been pretty flat for a while. And a big part of that is that more people are starting to find uh, females with autism or with Asperger's or whatever. Right. And mm -hmm. um, it's because that those the symptoms are completely different depending on the gender of the person. Interesting. Right. So a yes. so while a female sufferer with um, Asperger's may not show the same kind of social problems that a that a male with Asperger's would, they tend to be able to like hide it better. Um, they do show the same kind of like like thinking or developmental disorders that may come with it, right? Same way with autism. Right. So they may be there may not seem to be any kind of social dysfunction in things, but they're having a harder time in school. Um, they get very anxious. They, they like routine, whatever. Right. So the symptoms show up differently 
And it's only now that we're getting better at like, oh, this is what the, the brain scan of someone with autism yeah. looks like. We can pinpoint it, right? Wow. Or I always so think, they have different coping. Exactly. Yeah, they they or, cope differently than boys do in some Right. Ways, or I always think, I always think like when I was, when I was a kid, I remember my mom telling me that, because um, one of my cousins has autism and he's very mm-hmm. high functioning though. So um, when I was a kid, I you know, hardly knew anything was going on. But I remember my mom telling me at some point that back in Italy where they lived, they had a cousin with autism who just like didn't go to school. He just worked on the farm. And so wow. he like, it was kind of like, a nor- you know, they were just like, well, he's a little weird. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, you know, it's in Italy, whatever. Um, but I'm, oh, it's a, that's that I hadn't heard that about women being diagnosed more. I think it's what's interesting to me, too, is it's like it's gone undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. This whole branch yeah. has or ne- and now there's, you know, you're finally starting to come out of some stigma with it and some right. sort of misdiagnosis with the vaccination myth yeah. around autism. Yeah. You know, you're finally starting to push it into more science and that's bringing so much more to light. Like, because if I look back, like as a child, we would have never, there was there was no dyslexia. There was no ADHD. There was no autism. It was, you know, again, it was, I think we probably were treated with bio, biofeedback and vitamins for the most part (laughs) on a lot of this stuff. And it's like, boy, it's like, if, if you can start to understand this stuff and demystify it, but I will say tying it back to tying it back to, uh, NeuroCore and, uh, (laughs) Betsy DeVoe, this kind of thing, I mean, it is, in my opinion, it doesn't help because it's it is eliminating an entire course of treatment right. by still attaching stigma to it, which is medication. Yeah, and like it's it, like yeah, it could. I mean, maybe maybe this thing would work for some people, right? Like we don't we don't know. It seems like there is some evidence that it has effectiveness with things like Alzheimer's, right, or things like um, things yeah. like other sort of like not memory disorders per se, but more like. Uh, or like personality disorders, I guess, where you change your thinking. Like I said, like mindfulness training is that same kind of idea, right? But the problem, like you said, is that, yeah, it it's clearly profit-driven. And the way that they make the profit is by being like, well, don't take medicine. You know right. what I mean? Like, That's we can, bad. We can YouTube the depression away. You know what I mean? Or whatever the hell they do. Making you watch videos and crap. Like, you know what's really funny was when you said that they're like these... Um, so I, I don't know, I don't know if this is actually a valid like way to think about this, but when I was like, you know, even now I have this big thing against going into a doctor's office or a dentist's office or whatever. That's like in a strip mall. Right. I'm always like, I'm always like, I don't know how legit these guys are. He's next to a McDonald's. Right. Sort of with you. Yeah. He's next to a 99 cent store. I don't right, know how I feel right, about this. Right. I don't know where he's getting his tools, but I'm not so sure. But when we, when we first moved to Boston, Katie and I. Um, Katie's got like some kind of like, you know, just dental Katie's Katie's whole family has really specific dental problems. So like they're all born without, um, they're all born like missing some random teeth right? and they just like, they just like never grow. Right. Can I, so, can I just tell you that Katie and what I've learned about her 
is absolutely fascinating. Oh my God. Like the picture that I'm putting together of Katie. And now that I hear like, she's, she's born with, you know, it's like right. a hereditary <laughs> affliction of, of the monarch family. That right. Katie comes she's from. got, and I'm like, she's got vampire teeth or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I know. I love this stuff. We need to put, I'm going to try to convince her to come on here at some point and do an episode oh, on like God. animal myths and stuff. Um, Katie, for those probably like, can you just leave me out of it? <laughs> right. I, I helped you pay for the stupid stickers. That's it, man. We're done. Katie, for those that don't know, is my is my fiance slash wife slash common law hetero life mate. Um, poor beleaguered other poor beleaguered other. Yes. So um, so when we first got to Boston, though, like she had some kind of like, you know, dental thing that had to go on. And we couldn't find a dentist to treat her like in enough time, whatever. Right. Like, like it wasn't like, you know, Oh my God, my tooth is abscessing. It was something I can't remember exactly what it was, but we had to go to this guy whose office was in a strip mall full of like derelict offices and stuff. Like it was a mall, but it wasn't even a nice mall. There was, there was like, it was all like 99 cent stores and you know, um, slightly irregular pastry shop, and like it was all really strange. Dented can, outlets. yeah, and like he was uh, in the food court. Tough. So on his card it said, "Come to you know whatever doctor whatever in the food court." Wow, and it cost yeah. us like it cost us like twenty dollars. Like he didn't take our insurance. He fixed her thing, and he's like twenty bucks. I was like, oh my god, have I been wrong this whole time? You know, should I get, I should get plastic surgery in a food court. Like what's going on? (laughs) You And they probably offer that. No. So then, you know, I I don't want to sound like it it could be kind of elitist could be like, Oh, the coastal elitist thing. It's like, Oh, I I have a mistrust of, you know, I look down upon, you know, the, the, the strip mall kind of like, you know, (laughs) if you have a medical need and I mean that, that becomes, and that has to be an option. Like, but then that kind of opens up again. Then, then you go into affordable health care. Like, you should have an option to be able to go to yeah, a facility a good that, is, hospital. that is a good hospital that yeah. is well trained, but is that is clean, that is you know FDA approved, that has procedures and right. checklists and all that stuff that you really that that are that's essential to well being. And I think that with with your mind, you should have the same options oh, and you absolutely. shouldn't be going to something that's going to be a franchise by somebody who's, who has almost a disdain for education in some yeah. ways too. No, I is, think, I think it's a big problem with mental health generally in the United States that like, it's yeah. looked at as, you know, these things are as debilitating as other, like there's a reason that the government is willing to pay you disability money and help you if you have some kind of like mental health issue, right? Like they're debilitating. They can really affect your entire life. Um, Yes. But we think of them as almost like, you know, uh, Mm. as like weak or as some kind of like, you know, whim, right? Yeah. You're a whiner. Yeah. Exactly. Like I think, I think it goes back to that idea of like, you know, um, uh, what was it called? Like uh, women's, like fainting women disorder oh, yes. or whatever, right? The hysteria. Yeah, hysteria, the yeah. Hysteria. You know, like, really, though, it is. It's like, you know, people yes. think, well, you're just going into hysterics or something. And it's like, yes. well, no, you can see, like, a brain scan of this person that it's really acting differently. So don't give me that crap, you know? It's, it's, it's a real thing. And um, if they do use science, it's almost, it is almost to prove an inferiority, right? It's an inherent right. inferiority and it's not, it's not to look for treatment. It's again, like with hysteria. Oh, the, she's just hysteric. Yeah. Another hysteric woman out there marching. <sighs> Damn. 
Damn them all. Freaking ladies, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the so the other um the other question we got was who is Marie? Who are you? How did you come to be on this show? Who is Marie Mayhew? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you, my friends. You don't want to know me. You don't want to know who I am. Let's just say, um, so I basically view myself as the J, Chris Cogswell, Silent Bob. <laughs> Not so Silent Bob. Not so but silent of all, Bob. like, so the one thing that I do know about, so I, I met, I met Chris through the ARC, which is uh, a research corp, and we study up and uh, and look for look for all kinds of fun stuff for a podcast called Astonishing Legends, yeah. which is which is excellent. And I had started listening to that, and um, I can't remember what episode it was, but I was I think I was unemployed at the time, <laughs> and at home listening to podcasts and um and they had one on i think it was polybolus polybolus oh polybolus yeah polybius right and they were talking about polybius and i had gone through like serial which i loved the yeah. first uh the first season of serial and like I went through, like, I devoured that. I devoured all of lore. And lore was, like, a little lightweight. I felt like I really loved, like, oh, all these weird things. But it was just sort of like this this really, this just 20 minutes. And you're mm-hmm. just sort of like, ah. Oh. And then, I, for some reason, I tuned into to that episode just sort of randomly. And it's like these two cats just sort of, like, shooting the shit about video games and conspiracy and like Scott saying that he owned uh like he went on he waxed nostalgic about owning a um owning a, a Tesla console or not a Tesla Tempest. console a, a Tempest. Tempest, yeah. Tempest console for for a little while and I was like who are these guys like what is what's this about but it was really addictive because I felt like you know they were engaging they were smart but then I was really frustrated because they ended the episode being like, "Yeah, we don't know. We don't. It sounds like it's. It sounds like it's a myth, but we don't really know for sure." And I was like, "How can you not know for sure?" Because um, one thing about like me and my my thought process is I'm not very. I'm again. I'm not. I'm not very scientific, but I really love details, and I really get hung up on on details and hung up on weird little stuff. And so I. I ended up pledging, I think, twenty-five bucks a month on um, on Patreon to their page and got an invite into the Ark. And you know that was one of the what was one of the perks at the time is you can come in and you can kind of see what we're going to be doing for upcoming episodes, and you can meet the people that are in here already doing research for us, and you know you can contribute your brand of crazy. And one of the first people that I reached out to and that I started to chat with was Chris Cogswell. And I, I had no idea. I had no, no idea about him or anything <laughs> like that. But I remember waking up one, one morning and I was, I was thinking about something on the way to work that was in one of the podcasts that we were doing. And I thought about it and I thought about it. And I'm like, God, I wish I had somebody to talk to about this. Like one weird, like this one, I can't even remember what the hell it was. It was like some crazy ass thing, right? And then I was just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna text him. And I'm like, hey, Chris, are you out? And he's, you know, and immediately he's like, what's up? And I'm like, I've got this crazy idea. Do you want to hear about it? And he's like, yeah, okay. You know, and I was like, I'm in New York, man. Of course. I, I sort of, from there, it's, it's just, 
you know, de-evolved into, into us coming up with crazier and crazier. Like, again, like I will be like, Oh my God. So I, I kind of think that a, you know, that a giant mushroom cloud of radiation could do what, well, but is there any kind of scientific or whatever? And you'll be like, Oh, well, I mean, let's think about that. Or I think the tides, the calculations. You know, let's run the math. And I'm like, I think, you know, I don't know if snowball, the dog could have physically fended <laughs> off. <laughs> alien invaders all right let's take a look at it so it's it's just been sort of this you know again i uh i have absolutely zero science background <laughs> no, well i wouldn't say that but i it's definitely not my native my native tongue and sure. so uh, that's 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 just me but i'm a big detail freak i'm a big <laughs> fan of mystery i try and sum it up like really nice I, i've been talking for 15 minutes about it but i try and sum it up like i'm I, I was the only person that was impressed with the Clone Wars opening, talking about, uh, you know, of a, a trade embargo. <laughs> the Senate. Oh, the Senate, Senate talking about a trade embargo. Oh the trade, there's a trade embargo. I'm like, wait, I, I know we're going to get to, you know, Anakin Skywalker's backstory, but I want to know a little bit more about this trade embargo. <laughs> Let me you know, how is it affecting? How is it affecting the the Senate? You know, <laughs> what what are they? What's what are the political ramifications? What are the what is the actual thing that the embargo is on? What are they trading? What's going on? Just, what's going on with that? Like that type of detail to me is hugely fascinating yeah. and is strange. So there's that. So that's basically Murray Mayhew. Uh, in a nutshell, that's that's uh, that's that's all I got. And I, I try I uh, I'll try and be sober for the majority of these. Nice. Well, yeah. Like, <laughs> Slightly less, slightly less caffeine. I mean, it depends on when we do these. I mean, That's so today true. is noon where you are. Oh, you are um, so close to the cutoff. So I actually put it out. close. It's like, well, noon. I, all right, we'll stick with the coffee. <laughs> had, had, had you had you dialed in at like twelve thirty? Nope. <laughs> Switch over. So, anyways, that's that is me. Cool. That is me. Cool. Yeah. So I hope I hope listeners, you know, kind of have some idea of who you are now. that's pretty um yes cool so okay so what so we also had two other topics right yes and we actually had another listener question too which we're going to get to this episode yes but okay let's you know what let's do the listener question so the other question we got was from Mm -hmm. so that question was from um dan aceta who is a phenomenal undergraduate student at northeastern university um he actually works in the lab with me and uh, they were my original listening base. <laughs> All my undergrads who, who were like, we don't get enough of Made Chris. To listen. We don't get enough of Chris in the lab telling us what to do. So we'll listen to him at home, too. We want to listen yeah, to I, him. I don't really understand what the and, hell they're thinking when they come home and listen to me. Oh, man. Or um, what? Dan, I hope. How's that, Dan? How you like me now, Dan? Yeah, Dan. <laughs> so now. So the next question came from Andrew Dayton, who's an awesome listener of the show and a good good guy he's on uh he's on twitter all the time asking questions and stuff so the question from him was basically um, i'm gonna kind of paraphrase here but he wondered what pressure would you need to have to make a planet out of coal out of coal <laughs> what out of coal? The, the other thing so we're gonna close. do today is clean coal so that's gonna be one of the other so things close. Um, what pressure do you have to reach to make a planet basically out of diamond or could there be a planet made of diamond? So we actually, I like, I like his thinking. It's it's really cool. I wonder, I wonder what he was listening to when he, when he thought of it or what he was like watching or whatever. Um, but so 
<laughs> is that what you see? He was like, uh, how, how can I pick up chicks? <laughs> you know what? This is the easiest way. Get a, a planet made of diamonds. Hey, um, baby. I think that's so interesting. Always that whole, like the, the campaign to make diamonds a thing, right? Like, uh, um, yeah. or even like in the St. Germain episode of astonishing legends, we never really touched on it, but the fact that a lot of the, or a couple of the crown jewels of England, are actually fake. Oh, seriously? Yeah, they're actually not real rubies. They're uh, they're another oh they're, they're another much easier to to produce, and you could make them as fakes during that time period, like really easily. Um, they're <laughs> they're made of you know like ruby and sapphire, just aluminum oxides with different colorings and stuff mm-hmm. um, from other mm-hmm. impurities. But these are just like a really cheap, easy to make. Like we could make it in the backyard, um, ruby. A fake ruby. They call them rubies, but they're not. We could. And, we, and you know, we, today we, we would know. Today we would know the difference because you can actually Don't check. tempt me. I know. Don't tempt no. me because now so, I'm going to be like, all right, Chris, we're going out to the backyard. I've so got the, some gasoline. Yeah. So the late, like, like a normal. Bug like, repellent. Like if you brought it, if you brought it to a, like a jeweler, they could tell immediately that it wasn't real because of the hardness. It would be different than real sapphire, or real ruby. And also like the clarity and things and the cut and whatever. And they could also just run, I'm sure they could just run a chemical analysis test on some of the scrapings or something, you know, whatever. But back then, or they, could take, they could take one look at us and we're covered in soot. <laughs> right. We smell like burnt bug spray or whatever the hell. It's burnt yeah. bug spray. You guys don't know. And we're look all serious. shifty around you and they'd be like, yeah. I don't, Security. I don't know if this is legit what you guys are trying to they sell me. They wouldn't even have to get out the loop. Um, they'd be like, yeah, you need to leave the strip mall. Yeah, yeah there was. And- it's you well, may need to go see the doctor in the food court because one of yours, you're bleeding. <laughs> one of you is bleeding. Go to the food court. Um, all right. Anyways, so um, so if you look at the phase diagram of carbon, so diamond is just carbon. Um, and it's actually just a phase of carbon. And what I mean by a phase is just like uh, just like water can turn into ice or it can turn into vapor, um, depending on how cold or how much pressure it's under. Um, carbon and every element, every, every molecule basically can do the same thing. Um, and so this comes up with what's called a phase diagram. And so carbon's phase diagram shows that it goes from graphite, which is just like carbon black, right? It goes from graphite and also different than graphene. Um, graphene is single layers of graphite, um, which they first made literally by using scotch tape. Um, did you ever hear that story, Marie? scotch tape okay man. so it's amazing is there so, something is what can't you do with, with scotch, scotch tape i'm or telling duct you duct tape between the two so world domination seriously what they did was they took like they took a pencil and they just like drew a big mark like a splotch on a piece of paper and they took some tape they stuck it on there took a layer more tape on that tape put another layer over and over and over and over and over again until they ended up with a atomically thin layer of graphite or graphene, which they called graphene. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's scientists doing this. Yeah, <laughs> no, this was like how they discovered it. Graphene sucks, by the way. It's a really cool material, but it's so hard to work with. Like you open up the little package of graphene and it, it's like just everywhere. Your whole lab is covered in soot because it's so light. It's so not dense. Um, okay. So looking at the phase diagram for copper or carbon, um, the lowest temperature and pressure that you can make diamond at is at zero Kelvin. So impossible. Um, anyways, 
because zero Kelvin is absolute zero. It's like the temperature at with at which molecules don't move at all. So we can't get there yet. I think the closest we can yep. get is like point three Kelvin or something, <laughs> something like that. Um, like seriously, we can get below one degree, but we can't get much much colder than that. Um, so at around like one to ten Kelvin, you can make diamond out of carbon by supplying 50 gigapascals of pressure. Okay. So 50 gigacat so much, fi- yeah. 50 gigapascals is 50 times 10 raised to the ninth power pascals. That's a lot of pascals. Okay. So just mm-hmm. as a just as a quick thing, right? So if we take 50 giga 50 pascals, 50 gigapascals, right? And then we divide by one, three, two, five. That is about 50. It's about 500,000 times the pressure on the surface of the earth. So my man couldn't be even using those diamonds to woo the ladies on this planet. He'd be straight dead. His, his, his blood would boil literally. (laughs) Um, there's so, yeah actually boil, i don't care what actually, game you have at that, that's gonna that's at, gonna hurt yeah that's gonna that, that's that, gonna impede you at that pressure and temperature he would be at something not even resembling normal matter that we think of at like z- around zero kelvin things start to act like because to reach zero kelvin you need to be like so far apart that there is no like interactions uh, right between atoms. Oh, snap. Okay, so... So, things uh, are getting weird. Anyways, um, the, other, the other extreme is at um, 10,000 Kelvin, which is pretty hot. <laughs> um, you need... You need... Uh, you need 500 gigapascal. No, 0.5. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. So still, still I'm still not seeing a diamond planet still, coming around anytime no, soon. No, um, no, it's not anytime soon at all. Um, not anytime soon. But, but we did, doing some Google, doing some Google science work, I did locate... A possible diamond mountain. Yeah. No, it is. Man. It is 500 gigapascals. So sorry. 
Oh, sorry. At 10,000 Kelvin, you need 500 gigapascals of pressure around there. So crazy, crazy still, amounts of pressure. Still crazy amounts of pressure, right? So we actually did the calculation out. Um, if we Chris did the calculation yeah, out, I yeah. drank coffee. If we did and, and sort of danced around. If uh, if we used air, so if we use just normal air like our atmosphere and our gravity, the height of our atmosphere to make a diamond mountain on Earth would have to be. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! I should put in. I should put in little apostrophes behind so I can get my numbers here. Uh, about 4 billion meters tall of atmosphere. Our atmosphere, and that is, our atmosphere. That is like with our atmosphere. Yeah. So our, atmosphere another, currently, yeah. our atmosphere currently is 12,000 meters. So we would need a, we would need a huge, actually, what's the difference between the Earth to the moon? <laughs> it would be yeah let's see that's 238 that hundred thousand meters no wait why did they give this to me in miles in meters you fool stupid google miles oh, google. 380 so 384.4 million so we're talking four trips no more than four like eight eight nine trips to the moon of atmosphere just to make a just diamond to get a diamond mountain to get a, a diamond, diamond mountain. mountain okay just now, for that if we used a much more dense gas right so the calculation for pressure so pressure is interesting pressure doesn't vary what pressure is literally is it's the force per area that gas supplies or something supplies to a surface right so the units of pressure are force per surface area right so, um, the unit for pressure is the Pascal. That's the SI unit, the standard international unit, scientific international, right? Um, unit, scientific international. That's definitely not what SI stands for. Um, the standard unit, the standard scientific notation unit for Pascal, for pressure is Pascal. Um, and so pressure is equivalent. So pressure is equal to the density of the gas times the gravitational constant on Earth times the height of the gas. Okay. I think it would just be easier for him to go to Zales. It would be so much easier to go to Zales. So, so, okay. Anyways, if we use, um, if we use, if we use uh, tungsten hexafluoride, which is the heaviest gas I can find, um, that has a density of about 4,000 times that of air. So we're talking like, like you're swimming through gas, basically. Um, that has, that would require about, um, about a hundred times the atmosphere of earth height wise. So, so the only way that it could work potentially is if gravity was different, right? It would have to be, it would have to be. Yeah. And so that was the other calculation that we did. So what we looked at was how much, how much force of gravity would you need if we had Earth's atmosphere height and Earth's atmosphere density to get that, that enough pressure to turn carbon into diamond. And that would be 333 times the gravity of Earth. So, so extremely. Still not coming out of it okay. No, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, no, yeah, there's, like, no yeah. there's no way. Yeah. There's no way there's you're no coming scenario out of it okay. Works out. No, 
there's yeah, no scenario where here. we could possibly make there's it unless no win-win. the only the only way I could think of it is if we sent like um we sent like Mark Wahlberg or something up in a rocket to like explode the diamond planet and then we collect the chips as oh, they fall to yeah. Earth. Shit, we should you know what? That's a treatment right there. <laughs> That's the only way. That's a treatment right there. We're talking there. about asteroid what was that stupid movie called? Armageddon Asteroid or some crap like that? Oh yeah. Armageddon. Armageddon? Yeah. 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 Hello. Ben Affleck. Okay. So uh, so what's his name else? Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Liz Tyler. All right. So real talk right now. That yes. was the first movie I cried to in a movie theater as a kid. Shit, yeah, I know why <laughs> you cried. That's a touching film. It's very One of touching. Them's not, they might not come back, man. And they're no. not even getting diamonds out of this shit. No. Okay? They're just and trying to like, save Earth. And it's like, they're just I, trying to save Earth. I don't want to miss a thing. Dang. You're like, no, no. No, we're Yes. All right. That's a beautiful film. Beautiful That's film. A beautiful film. That is a beautiful film, man. So, so we actually found that there that there actually might be a diamond planet, though, right? Yes. Or there might be yes. a planet with diamonds. There might be a planet with diamond mountains. Okay, and so they're in Near. the Beta Pictorius system. That's the star that they revolve yes. around. Yes. Crazy. Crazy and. Let me see. Let me. I'm, I'm looking at my. Uh, I'm looking at my. At my page on it, and they were saying it is even. There's even a possibility. A po- it is not implausible that there's life on this planet. That there'd be life on the planet. Interesting. It, certainly, it certainly would be exotic. Well, hell yeah, you got diamond mountains, man. <laughs> so, so the one that I found actually was there ain't gonna be no strip malls. There's no. There's no. <laughs> Being boringness happening up there, man. That's some. That's that's bling planet. So this one, this one that said, this one that I found was it's planet fifty five Cancri E or maybe Sancri E. Yeah, so we got to work on that name. It's a super Earth. Yeah, no one's going to Cancri E. No, we got we got to work on that. Is what's known as a super Earth because it is likely a rocky world orbiting a sun like star, but it has a radius twice as large as that of our own planet and a mass eight times greater. So that already, the mass of the planet is part of what determines the gravity, right? Mm-hmm. So that already changes things quite significantly, right? Um, the other thing that was really interesting was that they, the reason that they think this one might, or the, the planets in that system might have diamond um, or large diamond deposits is that they're mostly made out of carbon. There's no oxygen, yep. right? And so, or there's not a lot of oxygen. So it's like they, it might have an atmosphere as well, but obviously not made out of oxygen, maybe nitrogen or some other gas. Um, but the, the fact that there's so much carbon there just, you know, adds to the chance that there would be, you know, graphite that then turns into, into yes. diamond potentially. It's enshrouded in a thick cloud of gas. <laughs> and it's a mystery that has vexed, si- vexed, vexed. scientists. For years. Nice. Because the gas, the gas should not be there at all, is what they're saying about said planet. Huh. I do want to say that if a movie comes out within the next three years with Mark Wahlberg or somebody like yeah, Mark Wahlberg be I'll be mad. going to space and blowing up something and getting diamonds off of it for his, his dying wife back home. No, we called it. That's ours. We called it. It's ours. And I'm going to want some royalties. I'm gonna, I want the overseas royalties for that. Journey to the... Saying. We call it journey oh, to the diamond heart. 
diamond. Yeah. Ooh, that's not bad. We're going to have to workshop that one. We're going to have to focus group that one a little Scott, bit. I want to, you know. Scott, tell your wife. Oh, Scott, yeah. Scott, tell your wife. Yeah. Get, get Wahlberg on the line. Oh, um, we need so Yeah. <laughs> we need the hookup. Well, he's, well, he's, he's not doing too much. He was just in that Boston mass, uh, the Boston movie, right? Oh, yeah. So he's, not, he's not that busy. And he might be, maybe we could go with somebody younger. I think we might, he, Wahlberg's even a little past prime. I think we need somebody a little bit more. A little bit more with the millennials. Somebody that, the kids like. Okay, that is not the view of this podcast. I just want to say Mark Wahlberg is not past his prime. Okay? So Marie's views are her own. Okay. Um, okay, so what, was, uh, so what was the other, so the other thing we had what was your thing? So, so the way we're going to so, do this is every week we're going to tell each other some of the stuff we look at so that we can at least like look yes. it up. And then the other thing will be the other things. We'll do two things that are completely unknown or mostly unknown to either one of us. So I've got a science one. Marie's got like a, a cool, like some something, some other kind brain, of one. crazy ass. All right. I was up late. So I was up late last night. And I was, you know, paging, you know, looking, trying to find a good, is there a documentary or whatever to watch? And I was like, oh, hey, here's something called Cracking the Shakespeare Code. Okay. On It's on On Demand, probably on one of your channels, right? And it's like, it's recent. And I'm like, I'll watch this. You know, it's it, it's got a real, a real life Dan Brown vibe to it. So I start watching it and it's basically about this, uh, this Norwegian guy. His name is Pietra. Amundsen. I'm just. Comp- I can't Amundsen? even get to this. Let Amundsen. 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 Pieter Amundsen. Okay, I think I'm gonna go with Amundsen that. Amundsen is like a pretty, a pretty Amundsen. like famousy kind of name. Yeah, we're gonna go with that. Pieter, <laughs> Pieter uh, Amundsen, and he is joined. So he's this very soft-spoken, quiet Norwegian organist who plays an organ for a church in Norway and coaches kids skiing. So very unassuming, right? Very unassuming. Okay. And he is, he is joined by uh, a scholar in Shakespearean studies, okay. uh, Dr. Robert Crumpton, who is, he's British, got to be British for that type of stuff, right? So he's, he's devoted his life to Shakespeare and to studying Shakespeare and is, is, is really this, this, um, this uh this very very serious about it and so he he gets he gets wind and he's he's contacted by this uh this norwegian organist saying hey i've been looking at the first portfolio of shakespeare's work and i have found some very strange irregularities in the work that question the authenticity of Shakespeare and question what what they're called what is normally called in kind of if you've taken any kind of English classes or an English major the question of authorship right mm-hmm. um, there's a question of his authorship so of course Dr. Crumpton you know has got to put the smack down on this type of stuff because that we just can't have that so it, it's about them meeting and it's about uh this organist looking at the so the first portfolio is of Shakespeare's work was put out in like I want to see like 1620, 1623, about seven years after Shakespeare's death, and so it's this manuscript that is um, basically a certain amount of his poetry and then a certain amount of his plays. It's like twenty some odd of his plays. Okay. So it's all of his big, it's all of his famous works. You've got the Tempest, you've got Hamlet, you've got the histories, um, and it's. A, pretty big size it's a it's called a folio because it's oversized and it's a manuscript and so mm-hmm. he is and it's sort of the it's not sort of it's the sort of the definitive 
uh, position on Shakespeare. Shakespeare. This is Shakespeare's work. It was put together by the people that knew him. It, we don't have any of his actual handwritten manuscripts. So it is the closest things to Shakespeare we have. So this says, this says here that it was written, first published in 1623. Nice. Pull okay. that out of my ass, but yes. Yes. So, <laughs> so, and there's been, there have been other folios published <clears throat> since then, but this is the most famous. And it, it, there's, there was only like 500 printed. Oh, wow. And, what? So, sorry, let's just to put mm-hmm. put some just to put some um, kind of like texture Context. to this. Yeah. Yes. So Shakespeare was born or was baptized April twenty sixth, fifteen sixty four, and then died the twenty third of April, sixteen sixteen. So these are we're talking that these were published only like, I mean, after less than death. ten years at, but less than ten years after his death. Yes. And okay. again, just in case, I'm sure I'm sure you're you're well-educated listeners know this, but he was famous in his day. Like Shakespeare was very well known in his day and was po- his plays were popular. They were seen by common folk and royalty and they were well-performed and performed often. So he was, he was well-known. However, there's always been a question since then, did Shakespeare really, did the man known as Shakespeare, really write the plays Mm -hmm. that have the name Shakespeare on them. And there's all sorts of, you can listen to any type of podcast. There's all sorts of, of, for instances on that, like, oh, he couldn't have written it because he didn't come from royalty. He wouldn't have known half of the things that his plays are about, all the details that are in his plays about court intrigue and sort of how people lived at that time that were in a different social stratosphere than him. So it wouldn't have been he wouldn't have had knowledge of it is mm-hmm. one of the premises, which is again, a semi semi elitist, but kind of, you know, you've got some, you've got some variant, you know, some, some gravity to it. So there's the question like, well, if he didn't write it, who did? So then there's a the whole like, well, was it, was it Francis Bacon, Sir Francis mm-hmm. Bacon, which is always popular, Kit Marlowe, so forth and so on. So this documentary that i'm watching starts to raise that question so he goes what was it called dr crumpton goes it's cracking the shakespeare code okay um so this doctor dr crumpton goes and he kind of sits through uh uh pietra's explanation of what he's finding in the folio and he's basically saying look when i take the folio and if i apply a certain cipher to it a coded cipher known as, oh my God, I'm going to have to pronounce this. Let me look at it again. (laughs) Stenograph. Yeah. Okay. Stenograph. Stenography. Stenography. If I look at this with a stenography cipher, this is what it tells me. And if I am applying kind of different, again, different numeric codes to it, basically it is giving clues to the fact that not only was Shakespeare, not the author. There was more than one author. They were hiding something. There was two people that were that were actually behind the, the manuscript and were behind the, the stories of Shakespeare. Mm. And and one step further, one step into crazy zone, it's a map. It's a treasure map. If you look at this big document, <laughs> go through it, it's a map to treasure. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Come on now. I was just expecting like, you know, it was Sir Francis Bacon. And because, you know, the, I was a humanities major, which is mm-hmm. sort of like um, 
an English major with a failure to commit. So I couldn't even like, I didn't even really like, I had some Shakespeare classes, but I had to, you know, we did a whole semester on the question of the, of him being the author, what that means. And it's sort of like at the, to me, in my opinion, at the end of the day is like, it doesn't really matter. Cause like, what would be gained from, why would you fake that? Why yeah. would you go through all this effort yeah, to yeah, hide? Yeah. To, to, to hide your identity from, mm. you know, I mean, there's, I guess there's certain social reasons, but at the time, but it doesn't, it's, they're not very compelling and they're not, you end up with the place. You still have this, the work, which is right. really what is mm. amazing and important and still trans, you know, and still relevant to this day. Mm. But, you know, so I, that part of it was interesting and it was actually sort of more grounded, like as he's working through all these ciphers and he's saying, but if you add up all of, if, if every letter becomes a n- number and you add it up, it, beca- it spells out 100. And if you look on page 100 and you go down 100 spaces, it spells out bacon, you know, or whatever, like whatever he's working through it. I'm like, that's it. I'm in, I'm in. I'm like, I'm, I'm about 80%. I'm like, that's pretty cool. But then all of a sudden he makes, there's this leap. There's this fabulous leap, and it is, uh, and all of a sudden they start talking about Nova Scotia. Like they map it to Nova Scotia. And I'm like, Finally. and I'm like, motherfuckers, no, now no. We're on the meat on. of the matter, Marie. No, we're digging a hole in Oak Island. Exactly. Yes. And I'm just like, what the? You know, can we just, just for the love of Pete, and just in case anybody doesn't know, like, not only has has uh, I've done several diatribes about how I would just nuke. Nuke that island at this point. <laughs> I'm so fucking frustrated. But what the fuck? I don't know what's in it. But just try, try to, try to, what is down there? There's something. Is it? No, I don't know. So, um, and of course, you know, there's people with a much more studied approach, which is, you know, conservation. <laughs> that you shouldn't be using thermonuclear <laughs> weapons don't on nuke on Canada. Right. Don't nuke Canada. <laughs> right. Bye. Just to find out what's in this hole, maybe. Bye. Probably Bye. nothing. Bye. Yeah whatever um it's yeah but it's like and again uh astonishing legends did an, an amazing series on it that got me hooked on it and there's the uh history channel curse of oak island <laughs> which ends every episode with what do they know is there they have found at the bottom of a borehole x you know and it's yeah. like there's nothing ever down there it seems um, like if there is a curse on oak island it's that it's they will never, never f- ever finish writing books and making shows right. about oak island and I just, I, I chose this, you know, benign Dan Brown-esque <laughs> documentary about a nice, soft-spoken Norwegian and, you know, him kind of pissing off this, this professor who's looking at him with, like, that, that uniquely British mix of disdain and, you know, like, sort of curious disdain, you know. Toity-toity-ish. Yeah, certainly yeah. very, like, yeah. Very removed, but, like, uh, uh, but, you know, and all of a sudden it's back to Oak Island, and which actually was... I will say they they did some things. It was pretty interesting. It was pretty good. And it was, it ended on sort of a curious note. Like they actually, they actually went to Oak Island, which I did not know. They went to, he, I guess was in uh, Pietra Amundsen, Amundsen actually went, I know. (laughs) I'm sorry, people that are, that are actually good at pronunciation out there. <laughs> sorry. Norwegian. We're sorry, Norway. Norwegian or otherwise. I'm sorry, Norway. But um, he actually went there and dug in at certain places that the ciphers told him to dug in. And he did find some kind of crazy shit. Like he mm. found giant rocks with flat sides. So 
I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know. Interesting. But Interesting. It, it kind of leads back to my question of like, well, if you search hard enough for something, you're going to, yeah. Will you find it? Like if, yeah. if there's 900 pages in that folio, if I, what I was be more interested in, in learning about this stuff is like how much stuff, how many times did he try and fail before well, he found the thing that he I was think, looking yeah, for? Yeah, I think then I'll talk about that. I was going to say, I think that's the beauty of what, of like, so the cipher. So actually it's interesting. Francis Bacon came up with a cipher that he's bacon cipher is what it's called. Um, and it's pretty simple though. It's his cipher is just that like each letter in the alphabet is represented by a series of five letters, right? So it's like a is, you know, a, 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 B is a, 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 B, right. And and like, it just kind of changes where they are. And so you can get a combination of letters and whatever. And then there are more complicated ones like, uh, like book ciphers, right. Which is, Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, like the first yeah. letter, yeah, like the first letter of each, um, the first letter of each word or whatever somehow comes up with a list of like five letters again. And then that represents a code within a book. That's the key, right? Right. Um, that there's a central key that only the two people that know right. the code right. know of. The right. interesting thing, I think with trying to fit these into a work of, of art, right? Mm-hmm. Is that. Um, I don't really see how, I mean, I'm, I know it is possible, right? But usually the way that you do this is that the work of art itself isn't the cipher. It's the key, right? right? The cipher is a random string of letters and numbers and whatever. And then if you have the book, you can write a message. It's not that they're hiding a, a message in critically acclaimed poetry or plays, right? So it makes you yeah. wonder like the genius that you would have to have to do that is quite it's intense you know what i mean it's insane that they wouldn't have thought of a different way or whatever and then the other the other interesting thing i think is like what you were saying if you keep looking right so like with the enigma code right yes um which is one of my favorites the thing the problem with the enigma code is that you can find all kinds of things that might work but it's being sure that that is the one the one thing yeah one thing that's real because you're trying to deploy bombs and make War decisions based on that, right? For those that don't know, the Enigma code is cracking the German, uh, basically, cipher, right? They encoded messages to each other in different ways. And so finding a way to, to get that fixed um, was very difficult. So the British ended up doing it with the help of uh, Turing. Yeah, Alan Turing. Um, and there's an amazing, amazing movie about it by, uh, it's got a Benedict, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's super good. Sherlock. Yeah, yes. He's, he's fucking he's awesome. Good Anyways, oh, he's, he's so awesome. he's good in everything. Um, he just played my favorite superhero, Doctor Strange. Oh, pretty badass. We should talk. We should talk about both that. a doctor and a strange guy. My favorite. Anyways, um, oh my so god. The yeah, like, and the other thing too that I think is so interesting with that is, um, and by the way, really quickly, there's a guy who didn't need any norm core. Neurocore. He could self-regulate. <laughs> right. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So he had the, that training. I think the other interesting thing too is that like um if it is a so okay, two things, right? Two things quick. Three things actually. What I find really interesting is actually the difference between the bad so the the versions of his plays that came out before the first folio was published that are straight garbage. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is just from Wikipedia. So this is the the 
the soliloquy in Hamlet. So the first folio version is to be or not to be. That is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles, right? That's poetic. It's so famous, whatever. This is the version that, so that was in 1623 that it was published as the real thing. This was the version that was being put out in playhouses and things who didn't have access to the first folio or a good printing of Hamlet. It goes to be or not to be I, there's the point to die to sleep. Is that all? (laughs) It's so much worse. It's so much worse. You know, it's like uh, sometimes, sometimes I'll read a book and Katie will be like, well, what was that about? And I'll try to explain to her. And she's like, you are, the worst storyteller. You know, so I'm like, I'm like, I gave her one like famously bad rendition of what Dracula was about, and she's like, all I know is that you need to read Dracula again because you couldn't get it out. Like you just like came up with some bull crap. You know? Um the other thing that I think is so interesting is versions of the first folio that they find today sell for Cha-ching. hundreds of millions of dollars. Right? Yeah. Like, so this says there was one, let's see. So this says, okay, um, on July, on 13th, July, 2006, a complete copy of the first folio was auctioned at Sotheby's auction house. The book, which was in its original 17th century binding sold for 2.5 million hammer price. I don't know what hammer price is. 2.5 million pound. So So hammer price. I actually do know this. So hammer price (laughs) is the price that you would buy it for, but then also uh, the auction house will receive a premium on top of that. Oh, okay, got it. Normally, depending on what it sells for, they will also get an additional sum. Oh, learning, learning mm-hmm. stuff. So that's, but that's interesting, right? Like, what are they going to find in that dirty mud pit in Nova Scotia? <laughs> like, you had, like, you know what I mean? The the folio itself is the fucking prize, man. Like, go after that. You know. Well, and it's just I. It is hard to, you know, you've got so much jammed into it, right? You've got the question of authorship. So you're saying, okay, forget Shakespeare. It wasn't Shakespeare. It was Francis Bacon and this other guy, right? And they worked, and uh, Sir something Neville, right? So they worked together. And but why are they doing this? Why? What is the what is the impetus for them to come up with all this? To yeah. to forge this? Well, it's because there were Rosicrucians, right? And it's they're protecting something. They're burying something. And it's you know it goes back to Herod's vaults and. Jerusalem, it was stacked, you know, 700 AD, and they brought something, and that's what it is. And it's like, yeah, you know, like, why, how? So you've got all this really famous big ticket stuff, right? You've got, you've got whatever was in Herod's vault, which is probably like the, the menorah or the mm. Ark of the Covenant. You know, you got your, you got your Indiana Jones type shit. And then you've got probably the most famous author on the, on the face of the planet. Yeah. And something that is worth, the folio is worth, like, again, millions and millions of dollars. It's just, it's interesting, and it's sort of like, I don't, it's, it's crazy. But my only, my only other little thought, which is totally, totally a tangent to this, but is about authorship, because I always, I always thought that that was sort of a, the question of the authorship was interesting, but it's not the only place in literature and famous literature that it's happened. Yeah. Speaking of Sherlock... Speaking of Sherlock, mm-hmm. I was I was going back and looking into this a little bit more, and it was reminding me of this book I read a long time ago called well, it was a few years ago now, uh, the Sherlockian, the Sherlockian, mm-hmm. and it draws the difference between two types of 
two types of looking at any kind of canon literature. Mm-hmm. That either you're a doyalist or you're a Watsonian. A doyalist okay. is someone who looks at who has the story and is looking at the universe of the story. It's an out-of-universe reading of it. So I am writing the story and I am sick of writing it, so I am going to kill. I'm going to kill. I'm going to kill uh, Sherlock. Okay. This is where he's going to go. He's going to go over the falls, right? If I'm a Watsonian, I'm in universe, and my perception of it is he is now dead, but I'm still writing about him, and he will. He he may eventually come back. I get it. Okay, yeah. Right. Mm. So then there's even a further step that says uh, a doyalist. There's some splinter branches, I guess, of doyalism that says that. He was, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the literary agent to Dr. Watson, who was a real person, who in turn was the, the best friend and co-patriot of mm. Sherlock Holmes. Right? So you've got even this, even which I think is kind of fun and is even taking the idea of somebody who's again like, like Benedict Cumberbatch, who's now playing Sherlock, like he, that character just is so real, just doesn't die. He didn't die. He didn't die in the time he was being written for the strand. You know, they brought him back and he's so real to people, but that, that, that sort of has this little, it has its own momentum of authorship, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love all that. Like, um, what are they, I forget what they call it, but it's like mind universes, right? Where you, um, yeah. Like, you know, uh, like the Lord of the Rings or, my favorite one is my favorite one is the Elder Scrolls, which is a video game series, but I'm so into it, dude. It's got its own like cosmogamy, you know, it's got oh it's got all it's got everything, man. Um yeah. That's really, that's See now I want to play it. Oh you I've got totally the should. Oh my god, you totally should. Skyrim, start with listen, Morrowind, start with Morrowind so you can get the full flavor. Um it's a little it's like really dated. It's not it's not a little dated, it's really dated, but it's so fucking dead. <laughs> All right, that's all the time we have for this week's roundtable episode. Um, we will start again next time with Clean Coal, the topic that we keep trying to get to, but somehow keep missing. Um, I am. It'll still be around. It'll still be around. It'll be fine. They'll still be. They'll still be debating it. They'll still be talking about it, like it isn't already a thing that we all know what it means. Um, well, all of us know what it means. We haven't told you guys yet, so you don't know what it means. But I know, so. Whatever. Um, I am. I am very thankful for all the listeners. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, with my co-host Marie Mayhew. Thank you for listening. Thank you oh. for putting up with me. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty. It's pretty nice of you all to to listen to us for some reason. Um, I'll be back. Thank you. I'll be back in a week with another Mad Scientist podcast episode proper, um, and then in two weeks about we should have another roundtable follow the show on twitter instagram facebook um podbean for all updates and everything and um and thank you again for listening thank you i'm ken harbaugh host of warriors in their own words a podcast that presents the unvarnished unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe. 
and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.